This is a Federal News Network podcast. Not one but two bills would add vim and vigor to the Whistleblower Protection Act as it applies to the Veterans Affairs Department. Here with summaries and why she thinks they're a good idea, the Policy Council at the Project on Government Oversight, Melissa Wasser. Ms. Wasser, good to have you on. Good to be here, Tom. And these bills concern the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, the OAWP at VA, which I guess by all accounts has not been all that effective, has it? That's correct. It hasn't been as effective as it could be. So there's two bills out right now, one on the majority side in the House, one on the minority side in the House. It's just a discussion draft right now. Both bills would take steps to try to bring more accountability to that office where it's so desperately needed. All right, let's start with the Strengthening VA Whistleblower Protection Act of 2021. That's the majority bill. And what would that bill do? And tell us more about it. Sure. So that bill is trying to give this Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, or OAWP, some more independence from the agency. POGO has warned for a long time that placing this office within the agency kind of creates at least the appearance of a conflict. But what we know now is that even from VA whistleblowers is that that office is working together more with the agency than we would like. So the Strengthening uh, VA Whistleblower Protection Act would give OAWP a specific office general counsel. It would also make clear that those employees in OAWP cannot speak with the VA general counsel on ongoing cases, normally what happens before pursuing, uh, even giving a disciplinary recommendation. The OAWP will reach out to VA general counsel, and obviously those two entities have different ideas in mind, right? OAWP should be there to protect these whistleblowers and to make sure that there's accountability for those who retaliate and senior leader misconduct, but the VA is more worried about protecting the agency. So that bill would give them that general counsel, which they actually need very much. They would also make sure that those employees that are in the VA's office of general counsel would be banned from joining the OAWP's general counsel office and close a revolving door that we've been seeing between the agency and OAWP. Really interesting. So in other words, you almost want it to be like the IG office in some sense to make an analogy that it is part of the agency but has some independence from the top powers that be. That's correct. And the IG model has been really successful in making sure that there's some independence in between the office and the agency. So in order for them to be able to do their job and make sure that there's an unbiased view of these allegations that these whistleblowers are bringing forward, having that independence is absolutely crucial to the success of protecting those whistleblowers. And then there's the amending Title 38. That's the medical staff people in VA, quite a number of them, to strengthen and improve whistleblower protection office That's the minority bill. And how would that work? That's correct. So the majority and the minority are coming from, I think, a good place where they both want to strengthen protections. I just think they're coming from it at different sides of the coin. So this amending Title 38 bill would include new reporting requirements. So they want to make sure that there's a full analysis of what the office is doing, identifying issues within the office. There were reports of retaliation um, coming within that office as late as last year. They'd also want to make sure that if there's any concerns about the office's size or staffing, OAWP would be able to give recommendations for any legislative action. I think the most interesting part of that bill, it gives the secretary of the VA the authority to transfer funds back to the Office of Special Counsel to help address whistleblower and retaliation claims. And if you or your 
um, listeners remember, uh, OEWP was created to handle a surge capacity of cases coming from OSC. So this would give authority to give them a little bit more funding back to the office. Right. This all has its origin, I guess, back before the pandemic, a few years ago, during all of that scheduling problem when people couldn't get appointments to go to the VA to get health care. Right. Exactly. We're speaking with Melissa Wasser. She's policy counsel of the Project on Government Oversight. So do you see a pathway for these bills to maybe be harmonized by the Democrats and the Republicans? I absolutely think they can be harmonized in some way. It's very clear from the substance of both of these bills that both the majority and minority are coming from a place of wanting to protect whistleblowers. They see the value in whistleblowing, especially at the VA, and they see the value in terms of you know saving lives and saving this taxpayer money. So I think they definitely could be harmonized. I think they do need to kind of figure out, you know, on the reporting end, it's good to have reporting. It's good to have transparency and reporting, but we want to make sure it's not duplicative of things that are already existing in terms of reporting. So we think that those bills can go even further to protect whistleblowers at the VA. And these are coming up in the House pretty soon, aren't they? And you're going to be there to return and testify? Yes, I'll be returning to testify as to the status of these bills and more generally accountability and protecting whistleblowers at the VA in front of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. And so those will be, you know, some of our main recommendations. I think it's very important to note that um, that OAWP specific general counsel is probably one of the the shining notes of that bill, just because the lack of independence between the agency and the office is particularly troubling. And so we need to make sure that those whistleblowers can feel like their their disclosures are being heard and actually being brought to light and seeing the outcome of that. And what do we know about that surge? Again, that was about four or five years ago now. Have things settled down to where there's just the normal amounts of whistleblower wrongdoing being alleged? To our knowledge, yes. I know that OAWP has been working to eliminate a backlog of cases, which is always helpful. And I'm sure with the pandemic changing the way that we work and the way that those disclosures are being handled with them virtually, uh, they've tried their best to eliminate that backlog, but there's still these issues that remain. And so we want to make sure that if there's one chance at this bill that we can get in front of that committee and let them know that this lack of independence is a problem, there's really no enforcement sure. power as well. I think I think that's a big thing that um, we haven't covered really is when OAWP gives disciplinary recommendations out, they have no enforcement to actually see those disciplinary recommendations through. And so they list on their website that they've given out about 105 disciplinary recommendations and corrective actions. But under the current laws, they have no authority to enforce them. And that's a real problem. Is there any other office similar to that in another agency that does have that enforcement power? I mean, OSC may have it, but that's independent of all agencies. Is there a structure similar to the OAWP that VA has that existed anywhere else? Not to my knowledge, we would actually kind of model that off of OSC. And potentially, if we're able to not get enforcement authority, right, we're looking at more of a kickout option for folks to go to OSC to bring those cases before the Merit Systems Protection Board if VA components don't implement OAWP's disciplinary recommendations, um, which is a big ask. But we think that that is something that could really improve the system. And with respect to retaliation, which is the potential outcome of when there's a conflict of interest in the general counsel, when he or she is both the recipient of the reports and then kind of the judge of the reports, is there any evidence that you've heard recently that there is retaliation going on at VA against whistleblowers or any cases have come to light? 
So there was recent reporting talking through the case of Anthony Everett, who was a whistleblower. He was leading the security team that protects senior VA officials. And we've written about this. Two of our investigators at POGO saw how the prior VA chief would uh, take political aides to ensure that they would protect the secretary at all costs. And what we have seen is, at least in the case of Mr. Everett, he reached out to OAWP back in October of 2020 uh, and made a disclosure of what he saw to be an ethical breach and a misuse of taxpayer money. This was supposed to be kept confidential. As you know, keeping a whistleblower complaint confidential is the best way to prevent retaliation. Um, But three hours after he made that disclosure, he was demoted with no reason given. And so that seems to be the common occurrence is that there's retaliation is still a problem. And hopefully what's in both of these bills, once they bring them together, will help kind of prevent that retaliation a little bit more. Melissa Wasser is policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to her recent testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But could you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.